So, so I have a confession to make. That's maybe a good place to start on an Easter Sunday morning. Um, um, uh, other than, you know, you know, that interview with Mark, this is not the first time that I've preached this sermon. Um, I, uh, I, I preached a sunrise Easter Sunday sermon this morning in our new sanctuary. Now, I wasn't really supposed to be there, which is the confession, um, because it's a building under construction. Um, but the, the idea that the first sermon that would be preached in that sanctuary would be on Easter Sunday 2019 was a little bit kind of compelling to me. And I do have kind of tacit permission from uh, our, the site superintendent uh, that when they're not under construction um, that I've been released to go in. Uh, so that's my confession this morning. So if there's sin in that, Lord, forgive me. Um, uh, the congregation uh, really enjoyed the sermon. Um, <laughs> they've... Uh, they, they, they'd scattered stones around. They've, they're leveling it out and getting ready to pour concrete. And, and uh, I was believing I was hearing the rocks cry out. Um, so hopefully, hopefully there was something in that uh, for you as well. Um, uh, those of you who know me um, even a little bit know that I, I love music, uh, know that I, I'm a musician of sorts. And um, uh, I, I've been thinking about the thousands of songs that have been written that come out of uh, the Jesus event. Uh, Easter weekend, uh, Jesus coming. I don't know whether it would be tens of thousands, hundreds. Of, I don't know who would ever be able to count such a thing. Um, someone uh, counted, and apparently there have been over 15,000 books written about Abraham Lincoln's life. And, and one scholar who was sort of reviewing this said there's no other person in all of history about whom which there have been more books written except Jesus Christ. And I was like, well, isn't that a fascinating sort of comment from a scholar who would be thinking about Abe Lincoln? Um, and so we think about, well, what about songs? What about fine art? I mean, some of the, some of the most valuable art today is art that was created over the last 2,000 years of trying to retell the stories around the life of Jesus, retell stories around his, his coming into Jerusalem, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Um, kind of jumping back to songs, if you love music the way I love music, then I suspect that there have been times when you've been confronted by a lyric, like you've, you were forced to kind of what was that again? Um, the first time I remember that what was growing up uh, in, in my family, the, the only music that was on the radio was country music. Um, and so you can imagine a seven, eight-year-old listening to the radio with mom or dad in the car with whatever country music was on the radio, and all of a sudden a lyric kind of catches your ear, and it's like, well, what, what, would, what does that mean? Which, in that instance, usually is kind of an embarrassing conversation that's about to follow about what that lyric is referring to in country music. Um, uh, but, but then I went on, I studied violin. Uh, classical violin was the only thing that you know, was available, though I wanted to play fiddle. Um, and, and then I studied jazz. In, uh, in, well, I was introduced to jazz music, pop jazz music in, in high school, and then classical jazz music in, in college. And uh, again, the lyrics, like, like time and again, you're like, well, what? Did that lyricist mean by that? There's something, there's something that makes me ponder and think here. You go to pop music and, and, and all that much, much more. You know, I will always love you. I know, I know Whitney Houston. Um, 
But, 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 but you listen to those lyrics and you say, man, those are extraordinary claims that that, that singer's making, the songwriter's making. And if you know the story of some of the people who have created that music, you know that, that they've not been able to live out, in many cases, the, those profound things that they were promising. They, they became exaggerations of, of what they maybe were longing for as they, as they spoke of an idealized world, hoping that perhaps maybe somehow. I mean, I love these songs. I love, they shaped our culture, and, and there's something about that idealized language that we say, yeah, it should be better than it is, though it's not quite all that yet. Uh, there's, another, there's another place where we often go with, with music, with songs, and, that, and that's the ability to verbalize something that, that kind of defies any other way of expressing it. Um, I'm thinking of Claude Debussy's um, uh, Moonlight Sonata, or, or uh, uh, Claire de Lune is the, what it's classically known by. I mean, how do you describe moonlight? Well, well listen to an orchestra, and it's, it, it's pretty doggone close. Um, uh, Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, uh, in each of the seasons, he kind of found a way musically to communicate something of winter or something of autumn or spring or summer. And, and we say, well... There's a profundity in the artistic capacity to express things which somehow we know or suspect or long to be true, and yet, and yet it seems to be defying our, our immediate experience in life. So it's one of the hundreds of things that I, I really love about God. You see, great art is inspired by great art. And I, and I would, I love the fact that God is this quintessential artist. He's this remarkable, he's this remarkable artistic capacity. In his artistry, he desires to communicate with us. And he's found all kinds of ways to do it. His artistry is evident in the, in the sunrise. We sang about it earlier. There's something about a sunset which causes us to pause and we we ponder. For a moment longer. Maybe you've looked out at the snow-peaked mountains. You said, that is majestic. You know, or, or, or perhaps you've been on a prairie field when, when a ripe harvest of a ripe, ripe, ripe field of grain was just blowing in the wind, moving together. You say, that is, is mysterious and wonderful. Maybe it's the artistry of the power of the ocean as its waves break on the rocks of the shore, or, 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 or the mystery of that beautiful, still, starlit night. And I would suggest to you that the best of our artistic expressions, our music, our poetry, uh, the dance, the, the paintings that we paint, is replicating or, or, or it's mimicking or, or restating his artistry. He is the great artist but this morning, I want to invite you to consider the possibility that in the vastness of his artistry, in the array of his, of his demonstrations of beauty, he's actually inviting you to see him. And that that artistry actually is, is, is most beautifully and most wonderfully and most completely displayed in the events of the Easter weekend. And consider then this next step, that all 
of this is because of his love for you. It's his, his desire to communicate in a way that you can grasp a hold of. He loves you. And he's inviting you to respond to his love. This morning we're going to consider the, uh, the, the tragedy, uh, the poetry, and, and then the victory of the Easter account. It was read for you earlier. Morgan did a lovely job of reading it. Uh, it's part of the outline in your bulletin. I'd encourage you to pull it out, maybe follow along, maybe jot a note down or two as you, as you go along. Uh, but we'll begin with the tragedy of his sacrifice. I mean, it's obvious to anyone that something utterly profound, utterly tragic, took place on the 14th of Nisan, A.D. 30 or 33. That's the Jewish calendar, the month of Nisan. That's when, that's when the, 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 palms, sorry, the uh, Passover lamb would be sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan. But we, the world changed. A.D. 30, 33, somewhere, either of those dates, the crucifixion of Jesus. It continues to be this, this fact of history uh, that stands despite many attempts to write it off. The, the, the fact is that before any of the Gospels had been written, implied conspiracy theories there, before any of the Gospels had been written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, thousands of people were believing in Jesus. But before any of the letters that now compose our New Testament, letters written by Jesus' brother James, letters written by his friends Peter, John, St. Paul, before any of these had been written, churches were springing up all around the known world because of the undeniable tragedy of that first Good Friday and then the unstoppable claim that Jesus did not stay dead. St. Paul, in, in one of the very earliest New Testament letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes the following, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. This is, this is a very early conviction Paul says this was passed on to him. Now, the Apostle Paul had been this zealous Pharisee who had persecuted followers of Jesus. Uh, he was so opposed to this emerging church that he was actually willing to execute individuals who refused to, to, to stop following Jesus. Uh, Paul encountered then the risen and resurrected Lord Jesus and his life took like a 180-degree turn. Paul went from harshly opposing Jesus to radically loving Jesus. And then Paul wrote this letter about A.D. 54 or 57, but he's hearkening back about 20 years to his conversion. When he first began to follow Jesus, which was with places that only about a year, maximum two years after that first Easter weekend. 
And he says, I passed on to you what was passed on to me. See, this is a very early conviction, a very early understanding of what took place. This is a very early belief. And it was this which caused the early church to gain traction and to explode in popularity. The first Easter tragedy that led to victory. Paul says, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. And we know Shakespeare is a writer of great tragedies, right? But he was taking lessons from God. The original artist, the original poet, the original storyteller, the original playwright who's been writing the stories in the tragedies of our lives, in the victories of our lives, throughout the pages of history, page after page after glorious page, are, 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 are fraught with evidences of his love, calling humanity, calling you and me to pursue him as he has been pursuing you. But, but you know, God doesn't just speak in prose, and he just doesn't, doesn't just speak in tragedy. He also speaks in the language of poetry. We'll call it the poetry of his provision. You know what I mean when, when I say something's poetic? I mean, there's a couple of ways we use the word. We might say, look, something is poetic when it rhymes, right? Roses are red, violets are blue, your face is lovely, it looks good on you, okay? So, we, we, so it's poetic. But there's another sense in which we use the, the word poetry, something is poetic, when it, when it has a sense of balance to it or, or a sense of um, for, uh, fortunateness about it. Or you might even say it's almost mystical or magical, and just how the events turn out. We would say something happened in a poetic fashion. You follow me? So I, like, um, we would refer to poetic justice, right? Uh, a bad person does bad things, but then something bad happens to them. We would say that's, that's poetic justice. Uh, we talk about poetry in motion. Uh, maybe your favorite athlete, just the way they move and what they threw. And that's, oh, that was just so, that was poetry in motion. Let me show you some of the poetry of that first Easter weekend. Last Sunday, we reviewed the account of Palm Sunday. Matthew tells us in his gospel, Matthew chapter 21, uh, how Jesus uh, came down the road uh, from Bethany, east of Jerusalem, over the Mount of Olives, and he entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And people were cheering as he entered Jerusalem. They were laying their cloaks on the road in front of him, honoring him like a king coming, waving palm branches, a sign of Jewish patriotism. And people were singing, Hosanna to the son of David. And that was a term that was reserved for a Jewish king, someone who was from the family tree of ancient King David. They were singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there was... There was some mystery in all of that account. I mean, you've, you just read it through. It's like, uh, where did the donkeys come from? You just seem to know there were donkeys. There. Where the Maybe it's in, the, um, it's in the ancient prophecies, which the writers in the Gospels keep saying Jesus was fulfilling. Like these, like time after time after time, again, that God would send his rescuer to, to Israel. And through Israel, he would rescue the world. But there's something else to consider in this sort of sense of poetry that's present in the Easter account. And also coming to Jerusalem that day was the king from Rome 
uh, the king that Rome had set over Israel, King Herod, or Herod Antipas, technically. So, so let me just back you up on this. So, um, uh, let's see. Yeah. Okay. Um, Palm Sunday. Okay. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Good Friday, right? Um, Easter, well, Sabbath, Saturday, Holy Saturday now. Uh, Easter Sunday. Um, on Good Friday, um, we're told that Jesus was put before Pilate uh, on trial. Uh, Pilate was trying to get himself out of a sticky wicket um, and and pass the political hot potato to Herod, Herod Antipas. Um, Sent Jesus to Herod Antipas, who who Herod Antipas was a regional ruler in the northern part of Israel. Pilate was a regional ruler in the southern part of Israel, all on behalf of Rome. Um, That account tells us that King Herod was present in Jerusalem for this Passover, which then begs the question, well, when did he come to Jerusalem? And the answer is he came with the crowds on that Palm Sunday, which immediately followed the previous Sabbath. You follow me? Saturday, Sunday, Palm Sunday was when he came. Now, what that means is that Rome's king was making his entrance into Jerusalem at roughly the same time that the king God was offering to Israel, was making his entrance. Uh, Herod Antipas would be entering from the north of Jerusalem because he came from Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, a city he built in his own honor, um, uh, come down into Jerusalem. So you've got, you've got Rome's king entering Jerusalem at roughly the same time that the king that God is offering entering Jerusalem from opposite sides of the city. Uh, There's something kind of beautiful and poetic about that. Or consider, consider this. Jesus was executed on Friday. Where did I put Friday? I put Friday over here. So, so Jesus was executed on Friday. That was called by the Jews the day of preparation for the Jewish Sabbath. So, um, the, the Sabbath was celebrated on the Saturday. Um, that means that Jesus was executed on the very day that all of the other Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Uh, they're all being slaughtered in preparation for the Jewish observance of the Sabbath. Um, not only that, but in order to prepare the flocks of sheep for this enormous festival, um, when hundreds of thousands of Jews would come to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover, tens of thousands of sheep were herded into Jerusalem. Well, what day do you think the, the sheep were brought into Jerusalem? Well, it would be following the previous Passover. So, Palm Sunday... Monday, to, the sheep were all being... So roughly at the same time that the Passover lambs were being herded into Jerusalem for this Passover celebration, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, was coming into Jerusalem also. Like, who designs something like this? Like, who puts together the, the pieces that would fit in per- perfect synchronization? Uh, who anticipates over the, the centuries, over the millennia, such intricacies that come together? And it's like, there's something kind of poetic about that. There's something kind of beautiful about that. Add to that the fact that the Passover was the remembrance of God rescuing Israel out of Egypt about 1,400 years before. Uh, and, and that celebration was about uh, the, the lamb in Jewish households being slain and consumed, and the blood from that lamb being placed on the doorposts of the home across uh, 
across the overhead piece and then across this. And you can notice that they would make the sign of the cross when they would, with the hyssop branch, place the blood on their doorposts. And then the angel of death passed over those houses that had been protected. And ever since, the Jews would remember, pass over. And that lamb was, was, was given in anticipation of the lamb of God who would be given. There was, it was, those lambs pointed toward the one who would come. They, there was a sense in which they anticipated that in God's grace, there's a sense in which they reminded all who were worshiping of the costly nature of sin, of how it separates us from God. And the scriptures tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And those Passover lambs anticipated the one who would come as the Passover lamb who would would make it possible for my sin to be forgiven, your sin to be forgiven, and our relationship with God to be restored. These are the marks of a loving God who has placed witness, who has placed testimony, who has placed poetry, who has been writing on the pages of, of, of history this extraordinary love story of his pursuit for you. Adds that the fact that Throughout those centuries, all that I've described took place in a place called Mount Moriah. That was the, that was the place where Abraham was uh, tested by God, about 1800 BC. Mount Moriah was the place where uh, David bought uh, the space that would become the, the Jewish temple, roughly 1000 BC. And Mount Moriah was where the Passover lambs would be slaughtered throughout all of those years, including the 14th of Nisan, A.D. 30, on the day of preparation. And Mount Moriah is where, at a crossroad off the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, at the foot of a cliff face that looks like a skull, Jesus was crucified. Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's a rock formation that's part of Mount Moriah. Is that, not, is that not kind of a deep and profound poetic sense of balance there? That the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was slaughtered on the same rock formation, on that same holy ground, where all of those previous lambs had been offered. Like It seems to me that there's a song in that, is there not? Or a thousand songs in all of that, in the mystery of God at work through centuries, through millennia, in order to prepare the place and the time when he would encounter all who would look to him. And in a sunrise, a sunset, on the mountain peaks, in the valleys, on the grain blowing in the field, in the intricacies and the wonder and the beauty of the person sitting beside you, that he would say, will you look and see me? At long last, do you hear the continuity of, of the, the thread which connects these kinds of accounts? It's a song of intentionality which God has been singing since the dawn of time. It's a song of persistent pursuit. It's a song of love. And, and it's an invitation calling you to come. 
There's the tragedy of, of the sacrifice. There's the poetry of God's provision. But what about the song of his victory? Throughout history, throughout history great victories have always been, uh, been commemorated, celebrated in song, right? We are the champions, my friend, right? Uh, we, we didn't get to sing that Friday night for the flames, unfortunately. Um, but, but, but great victories have been commemorated in song throughout history. The Apostle Paul, in that letter that I read earlier, uh, that he wrote to the church in Corinth, um, he declares that the resurrection of Jesus is the point upon which Christianity rises or falls. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ was not raised from the dead, and all of our, all of our teaching is useless, Paul says. Like, like everything that we would practice, all of the things that we believe uh, are utterly useless. In fact, he goes on to say that, that it's worse than useless, it's actually deceptive. Uh, we're guilty of furthering a lie. But Paul says that's not the case. Here's, what, here's how Paul responds to that concern. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will return, well, he, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's quite the victory, you know? I mean, that, truthfully, that's the ultimate and most important victory. I mean, this is God, the pro basketball player, weaving through the impossible lines in order to make the perfect layup and then slam dunk it for us. This is God, the, the, the violinist virtuoso, who with a flurry of notes that, that is spectacular, causes the entire world to rise in ovation and, and acknowledge the greatness of him. This is God poetically dancing across the floor in such beauty that it compels us to come. It's him with, with such poetry that he says, can you hear me now? I love you. I love you, and I have been writing this story throughout all of history because I long to be restored in relationship to you. Will you hear me now? My love knows no bounds. He's been pouring out his heart for you, calling his willful children to come home. And the question before each and every one of us this Easter Sunday is will you come? Will you come to him as he calls? As he calls through that beautiful friend, the, the, the spouse that he's blessed you with, the kindness that has been his. Maybe, maybe you've heard his whisper as you've held a newborn baby. Maybe it's that companion who is just so faithful. There's something almost divine about that person. It testifies concerning him. Every kindness that you have known, 
Every success that you have ever counted beckons you to worship him, the one who gave you such talent, the one who gave you such favor in these ways. And you know, he has been beckoning you even through the most painful circumstances of your life. C.S. Lewis writes, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Is that business failure that seemed to undo you? That marriage that just won't be right? That crisis with your kids, or with your parents, or with your health? It's been God's loving way of saying, will you hear me now? I want to invite you to stand with me and invite the worship team to come. Friends, does God have your attention this morning? This is not the first time he's been beckoning to you, and yet you're here. On this Easter Sunday, 2019. What do you do with this? How do you respond when you begin to realize that God loves you? How do you re- Maybe it's an epiphany. Some people have called it a kairos moment when God encounters us. Maybe it's a moment like like Mark described for us earlier. When you realize there's got to be more to life than this. This morning I want to invite you to be restored to the Father. We take those steps through a prayer of confession and repentance. We agree with him concerning the brokenness that has separated us, and we begin to turn. And then I'm going to speak words of forgiveness and restoration over you. And we will acknowledge that his restoring you in relationship to himself is his joy. That created ones being restored to our creator is his highest priority. And all of this has been because he loves you. If these words are appropriate for you, speak them in your heart to the Father as I speak them for you. Heavenly Father and Most High God, thank you for your love for me. I confess that I have been running from you. This morning I resolve to run no longer. I confess that I've been confused about you. And this morning the clouds are beginning to part. I confess that there have been times when I just didn't care and have been careless with those revelations of yourself that you have made to me. Please forgive me. Please forgive my willful rebellion. Please forgive my ignoring of you. 
Father, would you restore me to yourself? Come into my life and lead and guide me such that I might become every good thing you have intended me to become. This morning I come to you having believed that Jesus has made this possible and trusting in the forgiveness of sin he is offering me. So it is in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer this morning, you are forgiven. All that has separated you from the Father has been washed away. John tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us, washing us clean. And he invites you to worship him.